0: This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by the Charcoal Book Club. The Charcoal Book Club is the monthly subscription service for photo book enthusiasts. Working with the most respected names in contemporary photography, Charcoal selects and delivers essential photo books to a worldwide community of collectors. Each month, members receive a signed first edition monograph and an exclusive print to add to their collections. Join the club by visiting charcoalbookclub.com and use the promo code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. When you have the chance to look at a photographer's work over the span of their career, it's interesting to see not only their progression, but the different subject matter and techniques they've considered as part of their work. You learn so much about what's important to that artist and how they use their medium to express their ideas and feelings. When I consider Catherine Opie, I'm fascinated by the photographer's diverse body of work that includes abstract urban landscapes, portraits of football players, surfers, and members of the LBTQ Plus community, and intimate self-portraits. Opie is a photographer that is always challenging not only her viewers, but also herself, and the results are always fascinating. Her latest self-titled book, Catherine Opie, comes out next month and provides you a wonderful overview of her career, and that spurred the conversation we share with you this week. This is Ibarian and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Thank you for making time for me today. Uh, and, and congrats on the book. Yeah, sure.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I got a,
0: uh, a PDF version of it. It looks amazing. It's a nice. You know, you produce all this work over, you know, 30 plus years. You know, you're going from one project to another project. And you're discussing the work periodically, especially as a, in your role as a teacher. But having to sit down and all of a sudden really take a look at it comprehensively probably does a bit of a job on you. You know, when you're having to think about it.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, as an artist, you're used to organizing survey shows or organizing, you know, like when I worked on the Guggenheim show for so many years and then that was in 2008. So you kind of have an idea, obviously, as you're making all these bodies of work, what you're doing and what you're thinking about. But then with this book in particular, because it's organized with the themes of uh people, places and politics and all and it's a, not a chronological book, all of a sudden even myself like saw things differently within my own work, which I think is kind of rare and exciting that a different uh presentation or possibility could Happen for yourself as an artist and looking in your own
0: world. Can you give me an example of one? one such. Uh...
1: Well, I think like there's a there's a beautiful portrait of Julie in the river. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, my yeah. wife, and then all of a sudden, the next photograph is a Church Point football player, a super hyper masculine image of this young man. You know, holding the football, and she grew up in Church Point. And it's our beloved river in Three Rivers. And I never necessarily would have thought about uh, all of a sudden those two images together. But what they represent is like, you know, a life lived. Yeah. It's like, yeah, she grew up in Church Point And here's a young man who was a football player from her hometown in Louisiana, who's all of a sudden you know, on the, on the page representing hyper and Julie's like, sh- you know, kind of semi-nude standing on a rock in a flowing river. There's just a certain kind of poetics to that that I not, would have not necessarily made those connections. With. Yeah,
0: it's, it's fascinating to think, making a work over basically a, a, a lifetime, that if the work is really personal, that if it's infused by that, not just some sort of abstract concept that you're you're pursuing photographically, that you make those discoveries over time, that things that weren't obvious to you, but may have inspired the work initially, sort of weave its way into it. And then with the passage of time and with you changing and society changing, you rediscover the work in a way you could never have done when you were making it when you were you know, when you're actually making the photograph.
1: Well, I think that artists have tunnel vision to a certain extent, that, they're, that certainly their work is their work. But when you're in a zone of making a new body of work, and especially if you're trying to do something that's out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. I think that everything else falls away. Like the, Even though the history is there, you're not necessarily in conversation with that history of your own work you're more in conversation with what's happening in relationship to contemporary art and a larger field versus your own field.
0: You yeah. Know? You made an interesting point now about photographing or making work outside of your comfort zone. How often was that a factor when you were taking on a, a new project, either consciously or not?
1: I think that I always wanted to push myself. I think that I, never wanted to fall into a place of making the same kind of image over and over again. I think that, you know, in, I not, you know, I did the shift very intentionally from making the portraits on colored backgrounds to making the freeway images Mm
0: -hmm. because I
1: didn't want to be a singular identity. You know, I didn't want to be the person that was like the queer artist of the 90s and very careful about stepping into what happens where, uh, you know, it's like, it it is the constant questioning of what is iconic and what is cliche that I have done in various bodies of work, but also not wanting to, you know, necessarily trap myself within those holdings of how easily it is to read somebody or read something that i wanted it always to be more open ended so i think that i tried to put myself in in different situations that wasn't my comfort zone so that i could see what i could really do as a you know as a large breadth of ideas that i explore within within different positioning of how I create bodies of work so to speak with, with your
0: early work when you were doing the work early work in the, of the queer community there you made a you made a statement that says you didn't want to be a voyeur in your own community yeah and I thought that was really fascinating statement because I've had conversations recently about documentary uh, work and the idea of being aware of your own biases and your intent, When you are coming in as an outsider to document another community and the whole issue of of those communities being exoticized and your own biases and prejudices that you may not even be aware of. But the importance of being conscious to some degree of it so that it can inform the imagery. But the fact that you were photographing a community that you were part of and still concerned with that, I thought was a fascinating statement to make. And I really would love to talk to you more uh, about that, especially with respect to what we were just talking about in terms of the challenge that that posed for you at the time.
1: Well, Yeah, I mean, there were so many different things going on within my own community. But I think voyeur is a really important relationship, especially when you think about the history of photography in relationship to portraiture. So coming out of the Zarkowski canon, so to speak, like John Zarkowski mm. canon of photography, I mean the prime examples of portraitists were people like Arbus. And Arbus had a very kind of voyeuristic tendency within the work. Or you could even think about, you know, Larry Clark in relationship to Tulsa. Tulsa yeah. Or you could think about Nan Golden in Ballad of Sexual Dependency, all work that I have an incredible respect for. But there was also a place within the work that allowed you to enter enter their lives and I think using the bright colored seamless and kind of almost treating my the you know our bodies and my friends' bodies as more of sites of architecture, so to speak, as well as portraiture, especially during an AIDS epidemic in which people were being lost constantly, was a way to kind of. Not, not have that also voyeurism take hold within the work because the subjects were really just being, you know? They weren't being in their space. You couldn't enter their realm because of the way I basically constructed and aestheticized the portraits. And so they, they had this different ground on it. And in the same way that you think about it, Avedon's American West, Like there's an intense voyeurism within that body of work to a certain extent. Um, Even though some of the portraits are really incredible, there's always this Mm -hmm. othering. So in looking at all of this different work, especially specifically within the history of photography... I wanted to try to not do that with not only my own body, but my friends' bodies, and was just trying to be conscientious around it.
0: Some of the work that was being done by the queer community at that time was, was sec- mostly revolved with sexuality. And, I, and to my thinking, some of it was sort of inspired by the idea that so much of that had been associated with shame. Mm-hmm. you know this whole idea that that is a shameful thing that it's a sinful thing and all these things and that for, for for the body work was a much more of a declaration sort of the antithesis of that of of that sort of attitude and that this and that the work was a way it was a kind of a declaration uh to a to a great degree but that your work didn't want us just sim- simply focus on the sexuality or of it that you wanted people to be seen as just people and not as queer gay bi whatever that you wanted they were they, they were nevertheless were that but they were people first in, in your photographs
1: oh absolutely no humanity has to ring out first for me first and foremost and i think that's the other thing that i'm interested in relationship to cliche and we you know and we were talking about a football player portrait earlier. And Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things also is like, as a, you know, a young lesbian that didn't acknowledge she was a lesbian in high school was still grappling with that in the seventies. Like, you know, the jocks were the ones who we feared in terms of us drama people who (laughs) hung around (laughs) like they were who we were scared of. And so then to actually make moving and sensitive portraits of high school Football players is also that kind of further reach and desire of myself that humanity and empathy must come first and foremost, and kind of whatever subject I try to. Yeah, do. I was a theater
0: geek as well, and so we dealt with the same kind of fear. <laughs> only to discover, only to discover, <laughs> several years later, that a lot of the people on the basketball and the football team were themselves gay. Uh, the, 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 yeah, <laughs> I know, but we, we presume <laughs> that they weren't. That's the presumption.
1: Right, a theater geeks. Yeah, group. Okay, yeah.
0: you know. One of the fascinating <laughs> things about your story is that you got turned on to photography by seeing the work of Lewis Hine when you were nine years old and you wrote a paper on it. And I, I know you've mentioned it several times in, in previous interviews, but what was it? Yeah. What did you see in that work as a young girl growing up in in Ohio that you saw that and that it just – triggered something in you that ended up changing your, your entire life.
1: I, I, I suppose it's because my, my grandfather and my father uh, owned a craft company and it was a factory and I would go on the weekends with my dad to the factory while he would have to work and do paperwork. He would put my brother and I kind of in the different stations of the assembly lines and I would ah. put boards in the saw paper, you know, the wooden, uh, salt and pepper shakers. I would put the metal keychain part on the uh you know, the wooden keychain that somebody would decorate. It was all during the arts and crafts movement where where these basswood boxes would be decoupaged and decorated. So they made that. I wasn't really a factory worker, but I suppose when I was, uh, asked, you know, to write something about child labors, because (laughs) the social studies book had the Lewis Hine photograph in it. And so I looked at that young girl in the South Carolina mills and could relate to, uh, somebody of that age, having to stand all day long in that mill doing kind of repetitive labor. And I just it's not that I saw myself in her at all. It just explained being able to look at it versus reading the words on the story about Lewis Hine and how he changed the laws was more potent to me as an image than actually reading the text. And so I chose to write about the photograph and describe the photograph. And I don't remember if I got a good grade or a bad grade, but I just remember being very, very moved by it, that I decided that I wanted to be a photographer.
0: That's fascinating. And that, that, that life experience that you had in that shop provided you sort of the connection to relate to someone whose experience was completely different from yours. You know, and, and that, you know, that at the time, when you looked at the photograph, that could have been hundreds of years ago, not just less than a hundred when you saw it, because I know when I looked at old photographs when I was a kid, that might as well have been five hundred years ago, right? And I wouldn't immediately make the connection, but it's just fascinating that that experience in that shop provided that that connection, you know, that 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 bridges the synapse between your experience and hers in that singular photograph.
1: Yeah, and just just what it meant for children to labor in that way, because I was a kid who spent enormous amount of time outside with other children, you know, playing all day in the summer or in the winter when, you know, it start. you'd get out of school and it would start becoming nighttime early in north Northeast Ohio, uh, right on Lake Erie. And you would just end up making, you know, you'd go sledding or you would do this or that or be in somebody's basement. So there was an enormous amount of time because of, the 60s and, and early 70s, when I was a kid before I moved to California, that was just spent in this world outside with other children making up games. And I suppose I look, looked at that young girl and thought, oh, there's none of that for her, you know? And mm. again, it was that empathy and that humanistic feeling I got from it, where I just realized how different her life was than my life
0: your work has always revolved around community not, and not necessarily that it's always had to focus on, on people, but community and things that are, that are relative to your own experience seem to inform a lot of your photographs. And I know that when you first got a camera, that, that you were photographing your own neighborhood and your family and friends. And I think that that's how a lot of people start, but, At some point when people start getting serious, quote unquote, of photography, and you probably see this with your work with students, they start thinking that it's things outside of themselves and their own experience that is far more interesting to photograph than anything that's sort of within their their orbit. And I'm wondering about what was the process for you? What was the journey for you to really embrace the idea that your experience, the world that you lived in, that you existed in, could be the very material that you could and you would use for your photographs.
1: Mm, that's a really interesting question. I don't think it, it, somebody's ever asked a question in that way. You know, I I think that there's a, a good amount of intuitive uh desire of of being able to kind of the idea of creating something that will be looked back at. Like I think that that was very much in my head and I'm been unwrapping that recently. Like I've been talking a lot more uh, about my dad's political campaign collection Mm -hmm. that really influenced me. Like I got to grow up with like the Lincoln Ferreo types in my living room and you know, really, really rare political. I still have Abraham Lincoln's ribbon from his memorial, which happened to be on my birthday. He was shot April 14th. And so I had all of these objects that that reminded me of a political past through campaign material that would tell me different stories about this country and about America and how we lived in it. And then I guess through that process, I realized that images did that and it did it for me at a very young age, because again, I grew up with look and life magazine and national geographic and all this kind of pictorial representation of of life you know and what documentary photography really did and i would i didn't know that i would map things out quite i mean i just turned 60 this past week but again this book in a certain way made made me realize like all the different kind of things that i've mapped out and and i didn't really think that i was going to that this was my big life plan it was just the fact that I couldn't stop asking questions and using photography to answer those questions that I kept initiating in my own mind.
0: I like that. I, I like that idea. Ask, continually asking questions, being curious. I think it's really essential beyond simply wanting to make a pleasing, aesthetically pleasing photograph, because that only goes so far. You know, the poignancy of of, of an image has so much to do with what the person sort of infuses into it and also time. Mm-hmm. You know, Because an image that's made today may all of a sudden really ripen five, 10 years later and gain its significance much, much later after it was taken.
1: Or immediately. For instance, I was photographing Wall Street making that body of work. And then literally two weeks after I started editing and put that body of work to rest to create an exhibition, 9-11 happened. And I'm looking at all these panorama photographs I did where there was never really a spot that the towers were not there in terms of the way that you walked around, you know, downtown uh, New York. And so I think that it was in that moment that I also when I did freeways, Mm -hmm. um, I never expected for them to immediately become historic because of a disaster. And the same with, you know, 9-11 that I always thought that these images would be really interesting 100 years from now or thinking about, you know, Lewis Hine in that way. But it's also we're living in such a fast moving world at this moment in time. And things are constantly shifting. That I also realize the immediacy of what uh, imagery is is giving to us. Uh, I am especially aware of that in relationship to us having to be indoors during the pandemic and be in lockdown. But in in the meantime, amazing civil unrest happened in relationship to George Floyd. And, you know, the constant conversation of monuments and land. And so I bought an RV and I went out during the pandemic to make a body of work called 2020, which was like kind of tracing where America was at, during another election of, of um, you know, re-election potentially of, of Trump who severely damaged this country. So the other thing that's always embedded in this work is this greater hope of some kind of democracy that is so completely flawed, but that we waved our flag so hard and high over all of, uh, you know, over the world, so to speak. And it's, 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 it's filled with such contradictions and I love that photography can ground it, but also question these kind of contradictions that can't be had in, say, photojournalism, because photojournalism doesn't allow for contradiction necessarily. It allows for a caption.
0: And I think that one of the gifts that this photography provides in terms of affecting change, and you've mentioned it, is, is hearing from young people who get to see a, your work. And they get to see not only themselves in the photograph, but they see a future that they couldn't have imagined for themselves until they saw themselves reflected in in a body of work. That's the experience that they had looking at your work. Did you have a similar experience yourself when you were coming up, um, say, when you were in college, that that was as affirming as some of the people who have come up to you?
1: Well, I think there were so many different artists that were affirming. I mean, I would say that Dorothea Lange was really important to me in terms of her humanity. And, uh, you know, there was a show not that long ago at SF MoMA that just really showed within the sequence of what the curator put out of how important hands were and how she didn't look down on people, but always looked up at people in terms of the positioning of the camera and how she posed bodies. And I know that there's a lot of, you know, um, writings in relationship to migrant mother and whether or not that should actually be an iconic image of the depression, but it, it was, and the manipulation obviously is talked about in relationship to that. But I think that photography is highly manipulative. I think that a lot of art is because it's coming from an artist's point of view, you know? And there's always manipulation in relationship to trying to figure out what an, what an artist or a photographer is thinking in relationship to their point of view. But when you look at the entirety of the body of work, you know, it, it, it comes across differently in my mind.
0: One of the things that I think has made me a better photographer has been opening my eyes to different ways of seeing. Though I have my favorite genres and photographers, it's photographers doing things that I've not considered for myself that have taught me so much. When I ask each guest for a photographer to recommend, I get excited when I hear a name I'm not familiar with. It's an opportunity for me to make a new discovery and to be newly inspired. When I receive a new book each month from the Charles Cole book club, they are often a photographer I'm not familiar with. And that excites me with each book. I experience very distinctive voices. People who are creating personal great work that sometimes challenges my thinking about both the individual image and a body of work. The care and thoughtfulness that goes into their curation makes charcoal a valuable resource for me. Though I have the opportunity to make other selections other than that month's choice, I never change the order because I've come to trust their efforts to bring me work that is worthy of my attention. Their first edition books showcase the best talents in contemporary photography. The production behind these books are top-notch, and it's obvious when you get to hold that book in your hands. If you want to find a new and different way to further propel your photography, the best decision is to become a Charcoal Book Club member today. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K., subsidized elsewhere. And if you're not feeling that month's selection, you can swap it out for a different one of similar value. Visit their website to see what they've offered in the past and what you have to look forward to. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code THECANDIDFRAME at checkout and receive a 10% discount on your first membership payment. And thanks to those of you who financially support The Candid Frame. Your belief in what we do means the world to us. If you haven't yet, you can help contribute to our work by becoming a Patreon supporter today. You can do that by contributing $5, $10, $20 or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Candor Frame. Just $5 a month from you makes a big difference. Thank you so much for your kindness and your support. You're known for a lot of your portraiture, some of which were images of people that you knew or were in, in relationships with. And you're working with larger film formats as well. Yeah. And I'm, re- I'm really curious to see how your approach to photographing people sort of evolved and changed, especially as you as you began exploring photographic people photographing people that you were less familiar with whom you Mm -hmm. didn't have those relationships with and how your approach your technique the way you saw them the way you interacted with them how did that change for you over over time as you made more and more bodies of work
1: i would would say that it didn't change that much in my own work it changed more in the kind of a abilities that I learned especially through taking jobs and editorial work. I used to shoot a lot for the New York Times Magazine and shop for a number of Wired Magazine, a number of magazines It would be traversing the country and it was a way to make extra money especially when I was adjunct, just an adjunct professor and I would say that having to land and get your gear together and meet somebody that you've never photographed and try to make a really incredible portrait that is also your style is uh is it 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 was a way to open myself up to making other portraits i think if i Mm. think that if i had stayed in my comfort zone again we were talking about comfort zones earlier i probably would like would have never done editorial work and like, figured out how to approach strangers. I was perfectly happy, even though some of the people in the early portraits I really only met in San Francisco and asked them to sit for me, it was still within my community. They still understood because other friends were sitting. But when all of a sudden you're photographing a Republican senator for the New York Times Magazine and you're taking out all your facial piercings <laughs> because. <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to put them off and they're an utter conservative Republican and you have to face them in your kind of dyke body. Then you do have to bring on a different persona and you have to deal with it differently. And I would say that that opened up other ways of thinking about portraits. But I think that ultimately, like I make formal portraits. It's like, even if it's a surfer or a football player where they might only be standing in front of me for a few minutes uh there's a formality to them where it feels endless. That they're there with me for a much longer period of time than you know, three to four minutes. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful. That story because it's like I, it's just it's added the idea of piercings to code switching, which I never <laughs> would, I never would have imagined.
1: <laughs> that's funny. <laughs>
0: I I'm really fascinated by. The, you know the idea of of portraiture being an an arm for showcasing humanity because especially now especially in the age of Instagram where everyone is providing this false face you know with their selfie cameras and you know and 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 the less genuine it is the more favorable the response will be right but when it comes to photographing yourself and being genuine that I think is is difficult it's difficult for me i mean i've been trying self-portraits um recently uh and it's you know it's loaded with a bunch of stuff you know body image stuff the way that i see myself the way i've been trying to control how other people perceive and see me tell me about putting yourself on the other side of that of that lens and what kind of challenges that that how that pushed you
1: there's these self portraits that nobody really knows about with a wide angle lens where I opened my letter from Yale and realized I wasn't be able to go to Yale for grad school. And so I started taking pictures with the you know, selfies with the camera pointed at me with a wide angle lens of me just breaking out and crying or nude in the bathtub. So they were always like highly performative in some ways you could think of Francesca Woodman in some ways mm-hmm, or, yeah. they weren't about me. They were about uh, my state of being, you know? And then I turned the camera on myself in London when I was uh, there photographing for a show. And it's probably the most, there's two self portraits. And I don't know if they're in the book or not, to tell you the truth. I have to look. One is, is is me out of the bath in Italy in a red corner where my bottom of my glasses are steamed up and you see my signature chain necklace and I'm nude and i am just, my hair is long and it's wet and it's dangling. That was like a very honest self-portrait of what the hell am I doing in Venice for six weeks trying to make a body of work about Canaletto when all I want to do in August is sit in a cold bath because it's so freaking hot out, you know? And so there's, you know, there's funny moments like that, that are honest, but for the most part, I've always thought of my self portraits as more not about me, but about enacting a place that I inhabit through a kind of a performative um nature, such as a cutting on my back or pervert or self portrait nursing, you know, with my son, but I'm not the, not the Madonna and baby Jesus. It's like an old, an old lesbian who's in her forties, you know, nursing a lily white oversized baby boy with pervert carved on my chest. (laughs) <laughs> that with the scar still visible. So I think of all those as more actions than necessarily trying to photograph myself. I think some of the most honest self-portraits are really like, you know, where people are more fragmenting their aging body like John Copeland's images. Those are very, very tender and different kind of self-portraits in my mind.
0: As you've gotten older and you've mentioned, you know, raising a child, how how has that helped you in terms of being more? I want sensitive may not be the right the right word that I'm looking for, but when it comes to portraiture, there's there's a certain consciousness awareness that you have to have of your 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 subject about the person they they present themselves as when they come into into your space and even though they're willing to pose for you, there's maybe still a reluctance there, but trying to be sensitive to their feelings, their doubts, their, their whatever angst that may be, they may be having. How has those those life experiences that you've had resulted in you becoming a better portraitist? I
1: have to think about that for a moment. I think that you just become a better portraitist because, or you try to be a better portraitist because you just are living longer and you have more knowledge about people. And you're also, as you live longer, you understand how things can change and also not change. And again, to reach for that greater place of of empathy is, uh, is a little bit, potentially easier if you remain if you try to remain optimistic about the world so to speak you know what I mean
0: which just hard to do sometimes <laughs> really
1: hard to do. so in the same time it's just like okay well I can like you know with me trying to be more optimistic and more kind of practical to a certain place of what all of this means you know uh you end up also being able to regard everybody differently and more humanistically hopefully so that when people come if they're nervous to the studio and you know we haven't met and i'm making a portrait i'm a very i'm even again my photographs look like they take a really long time i'm very quick with everybody I don't want to put people in an uncomfortable position. I don't usually play music. I talk to them. It goes fairly fast and I I really direct. I I am directing. I'm directing where hands go. I'm directing how they sit on a stool, what chair they sit in, what color background goes with them. I'm in control, you know, but in control in a way that is a friendly control. It's not like, yes. okay, I'm gonna make you like feel incredibly uncomfortable here because I want your inks to appear within the image. No, I just want a shared moment. It's just a shared space and a shared moment. And then you know you get something that you hopefully really, that really moves you, that moves myself in terms of the maker of the work.
0: With your landscapes, including the ones that you did are the freeways and the stuff that you did across the country. Does does that aid in you having that optimism that you just referred to?
1: I suppose so. It's a big world that we live in. I mean, I think the optimism is just, um, is getting to a place of hope, I, I suppose, because I think that, you know, It's pretty easy to get dragged down in this world and not be optimistic. I I find that this year alone, I mean, I watched my seven-year-old grandson try to do first grade on Zoom, you know, Monday through Friday. And I just, you know, and then I try to make it really fun for him afterwards on the day that Julie and I have him. And, you know, our daughter's a single mom who's a social worker, and she's trying to entertain a very active seven-year-old at home while she's trying to deal with abused children through foster care system. And so, you know, you just look at all of that cacophony and you either get depressed or you move on and you try to, again, answer those various questions that are in your mind to move things Forward, so that other people can possibly look at it through your own, you know, not to be cliche, but it's like really the only way to say this is through your own lens to a certain extent. And I wasn't trying to make a photo pun there. It just, you know, it mm-hmm. is like how I put out information out into the world is, is through this act of making images and trying to, you know, look at these larger issues within our society.
0: I really enjoy the, the landscapes that you do where you know the the top and the lower half are almost sort of monochrome. Yeah, and yet yeah. you have these small little details in the middle. And uh, for me, vi- visually, I love the photographs, but they also leave me feeling a sense of, of, of calm and, and, and peace taking a look at those images. And it's really interesting because they are a landscape photograph, but in a landscape photograph where the anchor of the image is not taking up a significant proportion of the frame. Wow. And when most people think about landscapes, whether they're natural or urban landscapes, it usually revolves around this large mass of shape and texture and color dominating the frame with all these other things being sort of secondary to complement or contrasted. And I'm, and I'm wondering about the choice to make those pictures not so much from a compositional perspective, point of view, but what you were kind of, where were you in terms of your state of mind? What were you feeling? What were you going through during that period that resulted in those photographs being what they are?
1: Well, the first time I kind of used that formula was in um, Minnesota, and I was photographing the ice houses. And I was also photographing, you know, American city style with a seven by 17 inch banquet camera of the, um, the skyways that connect the downtown. And so with all the American cities and the different bodies of work that I've made around the country, a lot of it thinks about the specificity of identity of place so that you can, you understand in LA what, what immigrant communities you've entered and exited through the facade of the mini mall, you know? So there is this specificity of identity that even within my own friend's bodies, it's like the queer architecture of the body, so to speak. And all of those are is really fascinating to me. But I was on these frozen lakes in Minnesota, photographing with an 8x10 camera, trying to make this body of work for the walker. And at first I was doing typical landscapes that were horizontal. And then the horizontality of the line and the frozen landscape. And at the first ones I had blue sky and I was like, took them back. And I was just like, these are not working. These are not interesting. And so then I started thinking about panoramas and how much I love like my panoramic camera, my 717. And I thought about kind of ideas around uh, the different relationship between chaos and organization. And kind of, uh, you know, where we are as human beings uh, around that. And then it just so happened that there was a blizzard the one weekend I was flying in in Minnesota because I was teaching at Yale at the time. So I was also really displaced in my life. I had left L.A., I had two major relationships break up. I moved and took a job at Yale. I was very happy to get a position at Yale, but I moved there also to be with a woman uh, in New York who broke up with me when I arrived. And so there was a very, and I was trying to get pregnant with Oliver. So I decided to be a single mom because I had health insurance for the first time. So standing alone on those frozen lakes with an 8 by 10 camera and then all of a sudden making it so that the horizon line was in the middle and making it so that it was a vertical landscape be- besides a horizontal landscape created an enormous amount of inner peace for me. It was just like, here's a consistent horizon line. I can make a body of work that's a fractured panorama that represents my own fractured state of being, but I can do it. And it also has all this idea of collectivity and community, that it's a temporary community that exists on the ice, that it's not its not static. They're not always there. They get taken off. There was all this stuff working for me in the way that I was thinking about my own life that then I just figured out a structure for it. So it's again answering those questions. Damn. And so I I basically created that structure and and fell immediately in love with it. And then I got headhunted from UCLA to come back to LA and got a tenured position at UCLA. Yale didn't want a offer. So I was like, okay, I get to move back home. And that'll much be much easier. I was pregnant at that point. So it'll be much easier with a a baby uh to not be dealing with a stroller in subways or moving to new haven or whatever i would have had to do because i was living in brooklyn and was delighted to go back to ucla because ucla was always my dream school that i wanted to be at and uh then it, uh, you know the surfers like the june gloom and everything and so then uh it was also a temporary community that existed on the water and then it became to this place where I was no longer in the dark room because I couldn't be because I have had really severe allergies to the chemicals at this point from overuse all those years. It became a way for me to create a language, uh, using this with various bodies of water that it also allowed time to move through. And I just became very obsessed with how it worked and that I could continue to kind of make this. And even though it seemed like always the same formula, each photograph was different within the formula. And then it just, I don't know, it created a lot of joy for me, quite honestly. Um, But I think Helen Molesworth says it the best, where when she curated this great show at the ICA in Boston, Empty and Full, she wrote a beautiful essay That talks about that horizon line as also um, my my constant position of equality and democracy, and I never was thinking that, but I love that she pointed that out.
0: Yeah, I take that. (laughs) 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 Mind if I steal that? I think I'll use it in every. Exactly,
1: that's exactly what I was doing.
0: Well, one of the challenges as a teacher is is not so much teaching the technical side of making a photograph. That's, that's easy. But leading someone to, creating an opportunity for someone to make something personal, I think is the biggest challenge. And so in your role as an educator at UCLA and elsewhere, um, what, what do you find helps you to be able to create that space? Because not everyone is going to take advantage of it as much as you would like like, like them to. But what is, what is something that you feel like you're doing in the classroom that creates a space for students to really make those kinds of initial breakthroughs?
1: Well, uh, I think that I have a, a, a very strong philosophy that everybody is an individual and that artists should not teach from themselves as being the right way to do things. And that you have to be an incredibly, incredibly good at listening, but also at looking. And so if you really listen to them in crit of what they're trying to convey, and yet it's not happening within the work because you listen to them so carefully, you can then reiterate some of the points that they made to you that you don't see in the work but what are some different devices in finding that place in relationship to making your own work? And I think that those are like key ingredients to me is I feel that I'm better at critique at this point than necessarily history and staying current with contemporary art history. Um, I tend to really just want to work off of what the person is trying to do within their work and then be as helpful as possible within them getting to that place where I'm not that interested in making a lot of people make photographs. Like I make images. I have no desire for that. Like, I, I think that I've, I've become very skilled in my practice and I've worked obviously my whole life at it, but that doesn't mean that the way that I do it is the right way. It's just my way.
0: So how do you think that time teaching facilitating, critiquing students' work, has improved you as an artist?
1: I think you're allowed to take in a lot of different people's opinions, and it's always interesting, and it just makes you out of your, it takes you out of your own bubble. And I suppose it makes you more aware of other people's opinions and ideas in relationship to what they're trying to convey. And that if I was only an artist, only working on my own work, it would be, it would feel very, um, I don't know, probably uh, uh, kind of solipsistic to a certain extent. It would would feel very closed down, but I get to enter their world and I'm very happy to be out of my world entering a different world. And I think that it just makes me also uh, more aware of different gestures that other people come up with that is like, oh, okay, this opens up the way that I can think about this because I see what you're doing within it, you know?
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Okay, I'm going to have to think about this for a moment. Um, I mean, there are so many artists, obviously, that I taught that I love their work, but I'm not going to use my own students right now. I'm going to talk about uh, Sue Kim, who is an also an L.A. artist, who is makes the most incredibly complicated cut-out restructuring of photographs. And if I could live with one of these cut-out forests for the rest of my life, I would be completely delighted to because they flop down. They are architectural. They're about breaking down a picture and putting together a picture. They do all of these things that my work could never do. And so I have an incredible appreciation for them. So everybody should take check out Sue Kim's work.
0: Well, thank you so much I'm for sure. your time on this weekend. I really enjoyed talking <laughs> to you. Thank
1: you so much. Have a good day.
0: Thanks to Catherine for joining us. You can pre-order a signed copy of her new book directly from her publisher at fightin.com. We'll have that and other links in the show notes and the website at thecandorframe.com. If you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show, write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts. Those reviews allow us to grow. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or make a one-time or recurring donation via PayPal. Thanks to Rob Gormley for his recent contributions. I'm also going to be leading my Using Your Life to Launch Your Photography online workshop later this summer. Find out more by clicking on the link on the website in the show notes or visit nobechicreative.com. We also provide a series of ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge and another way for you to support the show. And if you can't find every episode of the show on whatever service you listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. Who you can find at at TheOtherMartinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McLeod whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.